Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 175 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Today is a special interview with BBC Ski Sunday presenter Chemi Alcott. Now, in this episode, we go behind the scenes at Ski Sunday, looking at how she filmed different features for the show this winter, including unscrewing 100-year-old skis from a wall so she could try them out on snow, uh, wanting to go grass skiing with Dave Riding, and what it's like taking on a downhill course almost 10 years after you've retired from racing. Uh, We also discuss the many, many injuries she has suffered over her 20-year racing career. Now, regular listeners might notice the audio is slightly different from normal. That's because this is an edited version of an Instagram Live, which was hosted by Chemi and arranged by Ski Mojo, for whom she is an ambassador. And full disclaimer here, I also work with Ski Mojo, but I don't think this diminishes our conversation in any way. It was great to catch up with Chemi and go behind the scenes of Ski Sunday, and I'm sure you'll enjoy our chat too. I'm really quite excited about the opportunity to uh, chat to you. We tend to catch up on a on a fairly regular basis, but I haven't spoken to you uh, since uh, the beginning of the season, I think. And a lot has happened uh, in between. So I'd just like to thank uh, Ski Mojo, who've uh, arranged this opportunity for us to uh, to have a little chat. And, uh, you know, I've been following you via uh, Instagram and there are lots of really interesting things on there. I love following your uh, content. And I've got so many questions about, you know, this winter season in general. So I don't know if you're happy. I wonder if we could just, uh, you know, start off with uh, with Ski Sunday, because it's such a vicarious pleasure watching Ski Sunday every week during the winter. Whether you've got a ski holiday coming up imminently or not it's just brilliant to be able to see yourself and ed and all the other presenters you know out there uh, in the mountains and the racing isn't always necessarily my thing i enjoy watching uh, the racing but i much more enjoy the features everyone has an opinion on what they want more of on ski sunday yeah listen to one but it's it's a show for the masses even in fact would you believe that 30 percent of people who watch ski sunday don't ski or snowboard. Uh, that's an interesting fact. Okay, I didn't know that. I can kind of believe that, I guess, because you know it's uh, it's still you know athleticism. People don't you know would necessarily um, you know watch football or other sports without necessarily uh, being involved in them. And it's great to see that the best people uh, in any sport uh, do their job. But for me. It's the features that are the uh, key bit. And one of the ones I wanted to ask you about was something that I think you did quite early on in the season. When you were in Wengen, there was a brilliant feature with uh, the Ladies Ski Club. I think they're celebrating their 100th anniversary this year or something like this. And you actually dressed up and um, skied on equipment that was, I don't know, you tell me, how old was it? Okay, so this is quite this is quite an interesting one. So um, I have been a supporter of Ladies Ski Club for uh, my whole life. They were very kind to give me a grant, and they're really 
um, they're very imperative to the development of any young female skier in the UK and they have so much passion for the sport. And then last year it came to my attention that this year was their 100th anniversary and it was 100 years until these, uh, since these amazing women had gone out there and hiked up these unpieced piece on these old old skis and launched themselves down it and formed a uh, the lady ski club and so i said it'd be really great if we could try and get that on ski sunday and it's very challenging i don't get a say actually into what goes into the show unless it's the kind of ski shirt social at the end the freedom bit um that we're passionate about showing um and the producer was like right we'll go and film something and we'll try and put it in at the end in a new section yeah. and um went over to Mirren um, and to her. I was having dinner the night before going through this concept and writing the script. It was quite exciting for me because I got to write the whole thing. And um, and they were like, right, well, with your skis, we've got this plastic wood laminate sticker that we can put on your slalom skis. And I was like, oh, that feels like a cop out to me. Like, I really want to do this piece justice. And we happened to go to dinner at this guy's house who has a huge history of skiing. And he had these 100 year old skis that used to be in a museum on his wall. And I looked at them and I said, oh, what about those? And he's like, yeah, I would. And I mean, they're not skiable. And I was like, well, can we get them off the wall? So after our spaghetti bolognese and maybe a few glasses of wine, we got these skis, undrilled them from the wall. And I'm looking at them going, okay, yeah, right. This is the right era. Didn't have any edges because the way the skis were at the beginning, they didn't have edges. And then the wooden skis, you know, supersonic technology had these, these edges, but these were completely old school. Um, and I thought these are wicked. And then I was thinking, okay, I've got 12 hours until I want to start filming. What, what, how do I find boots? Um, and so I called a few people and they said, listen, we don't have boots from 100 years ago in your size because obviously women didn't ski that much. So there weren't many pairs of those leather boots. And I looked down and I looked at my snow boots for the season, which were these, I mean, it's Kurt Geiger, the brand is irrelevant, but these, these leather Actually, they're vegan boots, so they're not even leather. At like 11 p.m. the night before, I tried my normal, you know, walk around shoes in these um, wooden skis. And I thought we could make this happen. Um, but the whole, whole time, actually, the, the Ski Sunday team were rather nervous about this call. So they were like, no, don't do it, don't do it. Anyway, went out the next day. Um, the epic team in Murren had set a slalom. Um, not, I didn't actually realize that no one did slalom originally. They just went downhill because these skis are unbelievably brutal to turn. I mean, I, I couldn't turn. I, I watched the footage uh, again uh, earlier today and they looked incredibly difficult to control. It's almost impossible to imagine how anyone could have skied in them, even if they were just not going through a slalom course, just skiing downhill. Yeah, so anyway, so I, I did the slalom nine times and I fell eight times and eventually I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but I said to the guys, I was like, we need to show me falling because obviously I, I do unfortunately still have an ego when I ski and I want to be good. But how brutal this equipment was and how far we've come since uh, since those skis. And it was amazing what they used to manage to achieve on those skis, because I can tell you what the one five fives that I ski on day in, day out are a hell of a lot easier. For sure. Well, I mean, it was it was very impressive. So I've got to track back to this. So you're sitting in someone's house and he's got a pair of skis drilled to the wall and you decided, oh, you know what I think is a good idea. <laughs> I'm going to go and ski on those in a couple of days time. I'll tell you what, he was very nervous when he watched me the next day thinking that if I got hurt, it would be all his fault. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you've got to do it. You've got to do it it properly I think and um I wanted to do it justice and I didn't want to just fake it with my normal skis that wouldn't have 
that wouldn't have been real for me. And the ladies ski club were incredible and supportive, and they had all these outfits, and yeah, it was it was amazing. And and it is a tiny voice that I can give to an incredible team and club. It, it really was uh, really enjoyable to watch. And uh, you know, for anyone who's uh, with us just now, you can actually find it on Chemi's Instagram feed and watch that whole section uh, there. And I found that quite interesting. So you don't choose the editorial features you might suggest a few or they get decided you know at a production level i mean the good news is that we are an incredibly strong place in terms of passionate people who are involved in winter sports in the uk so yes ed and i present it but we've got as you know jenny jones and amy fuller and tim warwood and phil and all these incredible guest um feature presenters who tend to get the features and they you sometimes pitch them so i've pitched a few in the past and you can pitch ideas and they've got to see how it fits in and i know pre-olympic year most of our features are on athletes and athletes who are going to but in between the years we get to find incredible people who are out there in the mountains doing incredible things um so yeah we do propose a few stories like i i got to do the inferno a few years ago and that was something that i pushed for um every year i try and find a, a, a crazy event on snow so if anyone knows any, any of those um i'm trying to look for like teamwork ones and inclusivity ones where you've got every kind of body of athlete i think that would be a really fun one to do um so yeah you can pitch them but uh the big bosses are the ones who approve it okay well that, i mean that one was brilliant another one that i really enjoyed and i thought that the, you know the timing was so good because you obviously filmed it in the summer and you met up with Dave Riding and I was in Kitzbühel and I think it was possibly when he was having a lift being named after him or something like that. And I really enjoyed that feature because you went to the top of the course where subsequently he got another podium and did a run through kind of on the course. And, uh, you know, it was really entertaining to watch, but obviously perfect because he managed to perform so well again on that particular course so was that just was that just luck yeah. was that another one of your ideas still is very special for dave and we were there to, for the unveiling of his gondola which was amazing i did actually originally pitch that um uh we would grass ski down <laughs> <laughs> right um and that got shut down by dave very quickly now, i imagine his, his agent probably yeah. you know wouldn't have been very interested in that either right yeah, so so we so we were, you know we just thought let's walk down it, and I thought it was really interesting um, coming from obviously at the end of my career I was a speed skier, so the strife was more my thing um, than Dave's, um, but Dave brought so much humour to it, and you know the the skis very well, but chose tech because his strength is there, so it was great to hear all his comedy, and I thought doing an interview with athletes like that who are so talented but also so focused in the winter in the summertime you get a different edge to them you know he was so relaxed um he, he hadn't had his daughter yet so it was all before everything had kicked off in the last year for him um and it was great I, I think I think it's really important to show people's personalities especially ski racers personalities because they are wearing you know all of this goggles and helmets and you're so covered it's like right who is the person behind the mask because they have such incredibly unique personalities i mean there are sports where you can look at where there is a personality trait for the elite world class but in ski racing you get you get some absolute nutters um you get some musicians uh you get some guys who go out there and play golf every time they have a day off for, for relaxing themselves you get guys like dave who are obsessed with football folk uh fancy football you get every type of character and i think 
now working on the other side of the sport, it's my job to expose that and, and show that uniqueness that they all have. Yeah, well, it, it worked really well in terms of you know getting his personality uh, over. But I just love the fact that you were able to time that with him yet again producing an amazing result there. And you were there at the time when he uh, when he got his uh, podium. I think you interviewed him maybe immediately afterwards as well. I mean, this is another interesting thing with, with Ski Sunday is the rights. And everyone always says to us, oh, why aren't you racing this race and this race? And actually you get a certain amount of rights for a certain amount of countries. Um, and the Kitzbühel Slalom is never a race that we have the rights for. Yeah, we didn't have the rights for it, and the same this year. Um, but you're never going to write off, Dave, the legend, the Kitzbühel legend. Mm -hmm. You always have to be on your toes, ready. And obviously, I'm his friend, but I'm also a massive fan. So we, when we finish the show on the Saturday after the downhill, and, and we're still there on the Sunday, I go to watch him and then, you know, all the text messages in the WhatsApp group go wild. And I'm like, guys, you've got to be here. It's happening again. He's doing it. to show this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to be there in such a role as a fan. Um, but then be able to share that with other people. Well, it was it was great to great to watch. And, uh, you know, I believe is he is he the oldest person to win a Slalom World Cup race or the oldest person to podium? He's certainly, you know, we'd consider him to be a veteran oh, racer yeah. at the at this time. Yeah, you've got the Johan Clary, who's 42 and still he's just retired actually last week. Um, but I think that's what's so exciting about ski racing is that Dave I mean, his age is irrelevant. He does talk about it all the time. And, you know, he's he's he cracks the jokes, calling himself an old man. But his body is doing holding up really well. He has so much passion for it. And his technique is incredible. So you know, everyone always says to me, you know, when will he be done? And I'm like, well, why would he be done? Like, ignore age. We all develop at different stages. And he did get into the sport later. So actually... Although he's 36, he's actually only 26 because most people started 10 years before. <laughs> I like that theory. And I know that he's obviously super fit because um, I follow, uh, you know, I've interviewed him a few times. And I know that he and the team often do park run when they're uh, back in the UK. And he can pull out a very fast, I think it's a sub 18 park run, yeah. which is a very fast time. So, you so know, this, this is not just the skills of skiing slalom. I mean, I I mean, Dave is ridiculously competitive and actually that whole slalom team, is really <laughs> I think that's what works so well for them because they compete on the hill for coffees. You've probably seen them talk about <laughs> and I'm actually quite interested to, to t get in touch with them now and see who's winning that, that, that the bets on the coffees. But they do it on everything. They do it working out. They do it in, when they stay in South Spain in the summers, they do this crazy, horrendous, like maximum capacity work in the gym, in their free weights and then they have to run up one side of the mountain and get the gondola down and it is brutally steep but you just see how far they're willing to push themselves and actually Tristan Glass Davies and Alan Baxter um, and Jai the whole team are super fit so the coaches also compete with the athletes and it's just that healthy um, competitive environment. Hi listener, Ian here. Uh, just jumping in to let you know at this point, Chemi jumped off on a slight tangent to answer a question that was asked live about ski during as a possible feature for Ski Sunday. Whoever wrote that, they tried to propose doing that with Corinne Suter next winter. So Corinne Suter, uh, I think she was silver medalist in the World Championships this year, incredible Swiss skier. Um, her other passion is horse riding. Um, so I thought that would be a really fun thing to learn. And I've just seen, I mean, in America and the States, they have all these events where 
it's kind of like a ski cross but you've got a horse pulling you on a rope along and everything so and it would be wicked to try i used to horse ride i used to get sent to pony camp because i had too much energy in the summer so any camp <laughs> i wasn't that into horses and i have a huge amount of respect for polo players can i ask you about another uh, i guess this isn't a feature it was more the uh, racing side of things the Maribel downhill now, you know, for many years um, or quite a few years, Graham was doing the the kind of descents and filming that. And I think I'd asked you about that before and you weren't necessarily sure about whether or not it was something that you were going to take on. And this is obviously the first time. And, you know, it was it, it's been missed from the screen because it's thrilling to watch. Uh, I wondered how the decision to do it came about and what the process is, you know, to get to ski down a world championship downhill course as, a, as it was in that case. I mean, you're right. I did do a U-turn on it. Um, and I think that is just uh, the beauty of time and being forgetful. It took me a long time because when I retired, a surgeon who had done a lot of surgery on my right leg um, basically took my retirement decision out of my hands. Um, he said to me that if I crashed again with all the meta work that I have in, then wouldn't have a lower limb on my right leg it wouldn't it just wouldn't last I mean my I don't my bone has never healed now weight bear through this metal rod so um he you know I I love skiing but I love skiing more so that was it really helped me make my decision to retire and I'd given it a good go through four Olympics um but he said look you can't expect your body to be able to handle the forces of skiing 70 80 miles an hour now and and, and hold it together for the rest of your life so that's why I that's why I steered clear of doing a camera run for so long and then this winter I mean I, I really I've been I, I'm always training I'm always in the gym I train so that my body is ready to say yes I want to be able to be open to every opportunity that arises and I know that I'm getting older and after having two kids there's definitely some weaknesses there um and then this winter I felt good um the part of the Marybelle track was a track that we used to race at the British Champs and I was asked to do it and at that time I I didn't really have a reason that that day to say no <laughs> right okay as simple as that but then I got into the start and the Fizz TD said to me you've got to go hard on these first few gates don't take off any speed because that first uh boss anglaise the English jump which was yeah. after 12 yeah. the five foot cutout jump He's like, if you go off that without the speed that the other girls, the other athletes have, you will tear your ACL on landing. I mean, he was so black. This was two minutes before I started. He was so black. Yeah. He was trying to be funny, you know, the old cultural misunderstanding. Um, so he told me that and I was like, right, OK. I mean, I had intended to stand up a bit more. and But, you know, you push out that start again, your heartbeat goes and, and you you can't not return to the racer inside you. Your ego takes over. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask, when does this fit in relative to the competition? Okay, so, so yeah, I had begged to do a training run um, and mm. then do the live TV output on the Saturday. Yeah. So I was allowed to do a training run on the Thursday. And then what happened was the Thursday went so well, my first ever time filming and talking, that we just used that feed. I didn't even get to do it again. And I was like, oh, I could, I could maybe do it better. And, um, <laughs> but no, it was amazing. I mean, everyone just kept saying to me, you're not a ski racer, you're a TV presenter. It's more about the stories that you tell. And obviously I've watched Graham do it incredibly well for years and years and years. And I kind of wanted to put my own stamp on it. 
Um, but as soon as I started skiing, I literally went into racehead. I mean, I was making up stuff and names of <laughs> tracks that I had two decades and putting them in this track. Like I was talking about rock and roll. And um, when I was a racer, if there was any time a, a roller or a double roller or a triple roller in a turn, if it was one roller, we called it Huey. If it was two, we called it Huey and Louie. And if it was three, we called it Huey, Louie and Louie. Um, I, I watched it. I watched it earlier today. Yeah. And I was like thinking, wow, that's a very strange name for features on a course in France. <laughs> so, you know, your race head just starts and basically didn't have any monologue. I was very lucky you watched it today. You said, yeah, I was very lucky to not swear as I came because I'd watched a few of the girls in the training run um, ski two, two round there. And I was like, I know that you have to go straight. I know it's blind, but you have to go straight. So I, I was basically just, uh, you know, talking what my brain was saying. So my brain was saying, right, and this is some way where you've really got to go straight. You've got to have the confidence and the commitment to go straight. Anyway, I came over way too straight and my brain went expletives and I I went, oh, that was too straight, but luckily. Yeah, I remember that bit. Yeah, exactly. And and how, just uh, kind of specifically, kind of interesting to know how the cameras work, because you've got at least two, maybe three cameras. I mean, how many are there? Yeah, so, so we also changed that, you know, because Graham did it so well, I didn't want to do it exactly the same as Graham. And um, in Vengen, I decided that I might be able to do this camera run and so I got the long skis out which I haven't skied on forever you know the 220s are they're not the most fun ski they're the fast ski you can't go slow on them it's not like I could do my pieces to camera normally on ski Sunday on a 220 because Zoid the cameraman who's snowboarding you know he'd be left in the dust so I do use the slams mm -hmm. time so I got these skis out and I thought right I want to use these and I went to Central Sport in Bingham um, and there's an incredible creative snowboard um uh, technician there and Ed knew him and I said hey Steve could you help me make a really cool mount for the front of my ski so that I can put a, a front-facing mount on my tip because normally when you do that um, the vision is quite blurry and it vibrates but actually what's happened with the cameras the last few years they've got that internalized uh, stabilizer so he made this amazing mount for the front of my ski which was great actually because I'm normally better in the air on one ski than another to get it to contact. So I put it on my weak leg and it meant that it weighed the tip down and my jumping was better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I had one on my top, um, which my brother-in-law lent me on the morning of it, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Mike. Um, so that was facing forward. Then I had one, I undrilled um, the, the screw on top of my pole there. And then I had a forward facing one, which was good, but I actually tucked <laughs> way more than I thought I would. So we had to use the other cameras a lot in those shots because I was... Gotcha. And you had, you had a microphone as well? Yeah, I had a microphone inside my bus. Right, because the sound was very good. Mm. I mean, I guess, you know, it's a BBC, right? <laughs> Maybe you'd yeah. expect the sound to be good, but you're travelling quite fast. I was actually really relieved the sound was good because when I get nervous, and the last time this happened, of this extreme nerves, was when I did Dancing on Ice. And... <laughs> I get this really dry mouth. It doesn't matter how much water I've had. I think I, lots of people get it. And so as I was skiing down, going whatever, 60, 70 miles an hour, trying to talk, my mouth was sticking together because it was so dry. So I kept having to try and pull it out. And I was thinking, people are going to think I'm very strange watching this. But Will we see more uh, you know, downhill run-throughs from you then as we go into next season? Now you've taken it on and done it and you know, maybe it wasn't so bad. Do you think there'll be other ones or was it specifically because you'd skied that course before, it was Meribel, you knew it pretty well and therefore it wasn't 
that same type of challenge? Um, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, I know that it was very popular. And I think it's also really important to see uh, people getting out of their comfort zone who are on TV. You know, there's so often I'm doing things that I can do every single day, um, which isn't that relatable because everyone gets scared every day. So actually to go out there and do something that I'm scared of and, and you know, put that through words and through sport on television and people to share that with me because it's it's not normal going 70 miles an hour down the mountain. is. <laughs> I do want to do again and I will always you know I'll always accept my fear and talk about my fear and embrace it because I think it's part of getting out of your comfort zone and growing as a person and as a tv presenter so yes I do really want to do that yeah good well I look forward to that but I mean you mentioned that one of the reasons that uh, maybe you hadn't considered it before is because you have had you know you've had advice that uh, maybe you shouldn't be skiing uh, that fast and you've had a lot of injuries over your career I mean you know you went to probably had a 20-year racing career in total, you know, four Winter Olympics uh, in there. I mean, one of the reasons we're chatting today is because uh, it's been arranged by Ski Mojo. And we'll, we'll come on to the Ski Mojo uh, in a minute. But that has helped you. I wondered if you wanted to, if you could even remember reeling off the various injuries that you oh. have had during your career. Okay, so I always start at the top because my injuries at the top of my body are quite strange. But um, I dislocated my jaw at World Juniors. Uh, there was a gate that wasn't screwed in the whole way, and I fell inside on these death cookies, which I know everyone knows, those horrible cookies you get when yeah. the snow's not, and dislocated my jaw on the bottom of that. And thankfully, there was a French doctor there who put it back in. So I had years of, uh, of uh, physiotherapy inside my mouth, which is the worst. That and your psoas are the worst. Yeah things to have to have physio on and so that was that's my from the top down that's my first one. Oh, i'm also deaf in my right ear which a lot of people don't know which is why ed always stands on my left <laughs> this is so, do, oh good good, good inside <laughs> working on a mountain you and and you're smaller you'd stand on the side that's taller so that it's easier for the camera film i often make it quite difficult because i always have to stand on the right so that i can hear ed um i do okay. uh but I don't wear it because I can hear too much with my hearing aid. I've got like supersonic hearing with my hearing aid because I learned to hear through my teenage years and develop my left side much better. Um, so now when I put my hearing aid in, I can literally hear people's conversations three tables away and I feel like I'm being quite intrusive. So, um, so yeah, so I'm deaf in my right ear. I've got that jaw issue. Um, I broke my neck, which is widely publicized Evan. Yeah. My, my neck is fused together. Um, so I have the fused bone. I've got a, a, a nodule on the back of my neck. Um, then I broke my back just before my Olympics in Salt Lake City in Mount Hutt off a jump. In the start training with boys, um, I was quite feisty. I wanted to show them that girls could do it all. So I said they were worried about this jump. No one had hit it before. And so I said I would go first and I was the dummy and it didn't work out very well. I got the wind caught under my skis and landed straight in my and I was very lucky. I was wearing a back protector. So I got flown to Christchurch Airport that time. Um, and then my ribs, I broke my ribs. Actually, I had broken ribs at the Vancouver Olympics. I'd broken them in a training uh, in the Kiska just beforehand. And I remember because the Olympic Village has everything. And so we went to the medics there and they made me this chest plate like one woman chest plate. I mean it was quite embarrassing because I was still quite young and I was there in my bra and all these people had this like paper mache stuff to try and protect my my ribs for the race so I had this crazy 
cool chest plate made, which I unfortunately lost because I think that would be quite a fun memorabilia. Then <laughs> um, going down, I've had lots of groin tears. Um, I've got a, because I've got mm-hmm. such strong legs, my core was never strong enough. So I had instability through my hips and my core wasn't strong enough to hold that. So that's something that I do now a lot more Pilates based work so that I'm a bit more all rounded. Um, and then, well, I mean, then when we get to my knees, uh, I actually tired with two ACLs, very important to say. And then I was at the ski test and I was doing a tug of war on skis, which is a very stupid uh, movement pattern to do because obviously I wanted to be strong. So I dug my edges in and then I was pulling the rope this way and I just, and uh, I remember crawling out this circle, these people egging me on, um, and I knew I, that's what the torn ACL was. Um, and then on my other leg, uh, so I had the compound tib fib, um, shattered the leg, multiple, multiple pieces, broke through my... Was that in a single accident? Yeah, that was 2010 in Lake Louise. That was the big one. And I had multiple surgeries on that. So I had the external cage, I had plates, then I tried to have no metal work and now I have um, the nail down the bone marrow, but I didn't actually have bone marrow because it's so messed up. So that was a very complex surgery. Uh, then I broke my ankle. Um, that was two weeks after I won the second run in Solden World Cup in 2008. So that was going to be my big year of greatness. And then I broke my ankle. Um, and then this is a weird one, getting down to the feet. I was born with banana-shaped bones in my feet. Now, my mum was a swimmer, an international swimmer, and she had these huge paddle feet, and I inherited those. So, actually, in 2006, just after my mum passed away, I wanted to take some time to uh, come to terms with that and take time away from the sport. And so I decided to have corrective surgery on my the bones in my feet, so I had them all broken and realigned. And I was in a wheelchair for five months. Right. Okay. Have we got to the bottom now? (laughs) That was head to toe. I mean, in my mind, I have this picture of a skeleton with lots of little (laughs) marks on it. And uh, there's not much left as far as I can uh, remember that that hasn't been uh, kind of damaged at some point. Um, I wonder if you could tell me then how you came across the the ski mojo and, and how that has helped you then, given the various injuries that you've mentioned. So I think since 2010, um, I had lower limb knee problems. So I was constantly testing braces. So for a lot of my career, I was trying knee braces left, right and centre, trying taping. And I never was comfortable when I wore a knee brace or taping. I was, I'm a very, um, I, I've got a really sensitive touch to what my body's doing. I guess that helped me a lot during my career. But it also it means that if I had tape on one side of my body or if I had something going on, if my sock was tighter on one side or if I had a knee brace on, I, I always or what it did was it had a crazy fast connection to my brain to tell me that I was injured that side and that I should back off that leg. So it really I compensated all the time when I had asymmetric support, I call it. So even I remember when I was a kid, I had tendonitis and I used to tape my ten, my knit, my patella tendon, and I used to have to do it on both knees because otherwise I would back off that knee. And I think a lot of people have this, but they just go through it. But I'm so sensitive and in tune with my body that I need that symmetry, that pendulum motion. Um, so as soon as I found out about the ski mojo, I wrote to them and I was like, "Look, I I need this. I need something that supports my skeletal equally, um, so that I can." move through my injuries and and assist the power that I've lacked but on a on a both leg basis and it was just I mean it was night and day 
I've never worn yeah. an eBay since. And just, uh, you know, in case people who are listening to us chatting right now don't know then, do you want to explain how it's different from a ski, uh, from a regular ski brace? Yeah, so obviously a knee brace is you wear them on one leg um, and they are there to just really quite severely hold an injury in place. That's their role is to kind of block the movement whereas the ski mojo it's an external fixation that you wear on the side of your leg and it's got these hydraulic springs on the side that you can change how much assistance you want um so it takes it can take up to 70 percent of the the weight you have in your lower body away so if you're a really good skier but you haven't had time to train before your ski holiday and you want to ski all day every day it can really help with that endurance Equally, if you have pain, you can t tune it up so that it takes all the, the, the resistance and, the, and, the, and the, the pain that you have through your knees away. It literally becomes your knees, this suspension on the side. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is performance-wise, it's fantastic too. So uh, quite a lot of injuries happen. When people get tired, they drop their hip throughout the turn, especially because the skis now are so powerful and they give you so much whiplash. You know, we're always talking about that slingshot that you so when you come out of the turn, and you want to feel the power, but it's very hard to harness the power and stay on top of it. So that's why you see a lot of people have a eureka moment and make one great turn, but they can't make that consistency to do two or three because they get back at this back seat. And you'll all have done a wheelie, like everyone's got pulled back on the tails. And it's because the power and gravity pulling your hip backwards at the end of the turn is, is strong. So you have to really be able to keep your hip on top of your knees forward to try and keep that speed coming with you. And what the ski mojo doesn't allow you to do, it doesn't allow your hip to drop back. It really, at the end of the turn, it propels you forward and it really helps you work the front of the ski. So not only is it fast, it's also very safe. It's a much safer place to be in on the front of your ski. I mean, I have tried it myself. I used it in Sasfe in the summer a few years ago. And at the time, I was coming back from... Uh, a bit of a tendonitis, patella tendonitis in my knee from some of the running that I'd done. And I was amazed uh, how much difference uh, it made. So, so, so for me, when people ask me how, what it is, it's like having a power-assisted bike. I mean, everyone's tried electric bikes now. I use an electric bike to take my boys to school because I've got this, you know, it's not a cage, but I've got a bucket on the front and I weigh 45 kilos. And so even though I don't live in a very hilly area, um, I have a power-assisted bike and it just makes it easier and efficient and um, I can go longer on the bike. And that's kind of the same thing with the Ski Mojo. Um, I wear it underneath my trousers. Or, well, actually, I've got I've got special trousers. I've got tight trousers now. When I wear, I've got two looks that I go for it. And I either go jacket and tight trousers, or the other way round. Um, and so, yeah, I wear it on top or or underneath. But what I love about Ski Mojo is the community. So anytime you see another person with a Ski Mojo, you just gravitate towards them to share your experience. And I think that that is. It's kind of like, I remember when you were growing up, what was that car that if you had, was it a yellow MG? You like waved each other. It was a, you know, they're, they're a clan, they're a group. They stick together. I feel like that with a ski mojo on the mountain. You know, you see someone wearing and you want to know their story. Some of them are because they're getting older and they're not so fit and they miss skiing and it's just changed their lives. They can still do something they're really passionate about. Others are, they wanted to fast track back from injury. When we're talking about injury, it's really important that, you do seek professional advice. Obviously, I'm talking about my personal experiences with Ski Mojo, but very important that if you are considering it, you talk to your physios and, and your team to see if it's right for you. For sure. It's interesting you said that, you know, people uh, see you uh, wearing it, you know, in 
on the continent uh it, the sales are really really strong yeah. i was reading an article the other day about uh the number of people buying them in france now and i i think you've seen these photos they've got some uh, different designs in oh, leopard skin I, and, I love and have you seen those oh my gosh very jealous about that and I think that's a really clever idea because it's going to encourage people to be more likely to wear them on the outside because they look quite cool. Yeah. And that's just going to increase awareness of the mojo in itself and, and kind of normalize it, like you were saying there. Certainly, you know, everyone who I've come across who's uh, used it is very evangelical uh, about it. You know, they're, uh, you know, they're completely, uh, you know, haven't, haven't uh, met anyone where it, they haven't said that it has kind of worked uh, for them. So, you know, so that's that's really interesting to uh, to hear and you know in general it's great to know that it's helping to extend you know your skiing uh, career and hopefully it will help you um perhaps go down some more of the downhill runs on on ski sunday uh, next winter as well yeah thanks Ian. yeah no i definitely i think wearing the ski mojo it would almost feel like i was cheating on the way down because i'd definitely be able to talk without breaking a sweat if i did a, a downhill on the way down with that um, but no, it's it's fantastic. And I think that one thing I've learned throughout my career and having lived with pain for 10 years every single day and been pill popping to get rid of that pain, um, an athlete in the, in, in the race situation, I can't remember that I raced without painkillers and dulling the senses because of the pain that I had. And then when I retired, I realized that that is really something that we shouldn't do. We shouldn't live with pain. We shouldn't have to perform through pain. Um, and I'm very passionate about pain management. And for me, Ski Mojo is great for that. I do want to say that you can try them at Hemel. Um, there are places like people are like, oh, gosh, they, they're an expensive piece of kit because they are so good and they're very, very technical. Um, but when you think about all the expenses that you're putting into your ski holiday, if it makes you be able to ski double the amount of time, it's 100% worth it. You're taking, you're working so hard to make that ski holiday happen. So make sure you can get the most out of it. And you can try them in the snow domes. You can test them um, and see how great they are and see if they suit you too. Yeah, they, there's actually a blog post on their uh, site where someone wrote in uh, and they calculated the amount of skiing time that they did before they had the mojo and the amount of skiing time that yeah. they did afterwards and worked out that they earned back the cost of the mojo in relation to the, you know, the cost per hour skiing just on one holiday. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, lift passes are quite expensive. If you're not actually spending your time on the mountain, uh, then you're not really getting anything out of it. So at this point, we turn to some questions from people who tuned in for the Instagram Live. And the first one was about whether Ski Sunday could feature ski resorts in the summer as well as in the winter. I think it's incredible. It's what's necessary for the ski industry now is to make the resorts a destination in the summer as well, because we know that um, with the winters becoming more challenging in order for them to still be there in the winter, they've got to be able to monetize their summer. Um, so I, I think that is a really great feature. Uh, all I can think of is is in Whistler and those crazy gnarly um, jumps that they go on the bike. So I'm not going to do that one. 
not that one. But there's plenty. There's plenty. It's so many options uh, in the Alps in the summer. You know, I've spent many a family holiday uh, out there. And destinations, for example, uh, you know, like Chamonix is a fairly obvious one, which is really busy in the summer. But Teen, for example, I've been there with my kids before. They have so many activities there. You know, you can obviously do things like, you know, hiking, etc. But they've got uh, archery and air rifle shooting and trampolining and tennis. And they've got the wonderful lake there. So you can go paddleboarding and canoeing etc and you're right the resorts are you know looking to to bring people in and, and make themselves a a four season destination yeah yeah the next question was about skiing in scotland and whether that could feature more on ski sunday i have to talk about tim Wood's feature skiing in scotland because this year i watched it and it was just magical it looked unbelievable it, and we are so those on our kind of doorstep the more people go the better they can have the infrastructure there to get more people on the slopes and have a faster turnaround on lifts and um i think our winter in scotland has been much more consistent than other places in europe so yay ski scotland so that was the end of the questions and chemi had to uh, rush off to go and put her children to bed so let's move to the close I'd like to say uh, thanks very much for your uh, time today. And, uh, you know, I look forward to watching Ski Sunday again, as I do uh, every year. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll have the opportunity to catch up uh, before the autumn. Bye. Thanks very much, Chemi. And I look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Well, I really enjoyed my chat with Chemi and hopefully you did too. Uh, don't forget there are over 170 episodes of the Ski Podcast to catch up with and I just had a quick look and 118 were listened to in the last week. So don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss a single episode. Now you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the Ski Podcast and Chemi at Chemi Ski. Now I'd like to thank Chemi for her time and finally listener, thank you for joining us and until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.